Gospel of Mark today. This is our fourth week in this Gospel, and so much has happened. We're still in the first chapter. We're taking our time, and it's, it's so hard to, to go at the speed that the Gospel of Mark wants us to go and still process everything that's happening. When I work through a book of the Bible, I like to look under every rock and look around every corner and just take my time through it. That's how, that's how I like to study the Bible individually. And so that happens to be how I preach too. I just like to take my time through it. Like, what's the rush? I got my whole life, right? And so when I get to a gospel like Mark that moves so fast, <laughs> I feel myself wanting to tap the brakes. But so much has happened. We're covering verses 21 through 28 today in the first chapter, but just in those 20 verses, you think of how much we've learned. Remember, this is John Mark, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit to record the Word of God. He's interviewing the Apostle Peter, and he is recording these events so that we can understand the, a synopsis of the life of Christ. And so we're told immediately about John the Baptist and how the ministry of Jesus had a forerunner. Just like if a king was arriving in your town, a forerunner would arrive first, first, months in advance, preparing the roadways, getting people ready so that they could have on their best when the king arrived. Well, the forerunner to Jesus was John the Baptist, and he got people ready by telling them to repent. The, the kingdom of, of God is near, and, and he, he said, there is one that is coming that is greater than I, and he will baptize you in the name of the Holy Spirit, which was something more than what John the Baptist was doing. And then we know that Jesus did arrive. John identified Jesus as this Messiah. And when he baptized Jesus in order that Jesus could associate with his people, we, we are told that the, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And then we see Jesus begin his ministry. And what's the first thing the Holy Spirit does in the life of Christ? He drives Jesus into the wilderness uh, to be tested by Satan. And he, he's out there in a, in a time of fasting for 40 days and tempted by Satan, and he passes the test. So unlike the first Adam in the beginning of the Bible, who is tempted in paradise and fails, the second Adam, or, or the new Adam, the last Adam, he is tempted in the desert fasting and passes the test. And so after this, Jesus begins his ministry. He begins preaching and proclaiming God's gospel. God's good news to his people. That's what Jesus preached. It was an historic message. We talked about that last week, how it was a message that once it was preached, it would change all of time after it. It was, it was, it was an historic moment. And it, it was and still is looked at as this historic moment in time. When Jesus proclaimed this gospel, he also preached repentance. He would call people to repent of their sins, and people did. People would hear this gospel, and their lives were never the same. People like Peter, Andrew, James, John, who literally altered their lives almost immediately and began to follow after Jesus and be his disciples. All of that has happened in just 20 verses. And so now we're continuing into this gospel with verses 21 through 28. We have so many of these core ingredients to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we think of when we meditate upon the gospel. Jesus is preaching and he has disciples. His ministry has begun. So have you ever thought about this? Like, 
what was it about Jesus that people were so enamored by his teaching? You know, what was it about Jesus? And I think the text we're going to study today answers these questions. What was it about Jesus that made him stand out? There was a lot of rabbis preaching and teaching in that day. There were a lot of rabbis that were traveling around, a lot of rabbis that had a following of students or disciples that, that followed them around. What was it about Jesus that stood out among all of the other rabbis in that area? You know, I, so we're an Acts 29 church. That is a church planting network that I am involved with and I help to train and assess and equip and help uh, young church planters. And just try to, to try to, I'm just a few steps ahead of them. And so I get to help them. And, and I, you know, so I assess a lot of different guys I have over the years. And I remember one pastor telling me, every pastor needs an it factor. And he, he was trying to lay some wisdom down on me, right? You, every pastor needs an, an it factor. That, that factor that you just can't explain why people want to uh, be around them. They're attracted to them. There's this natural magnetic pull Maybe they have a certain amount of charisma or friendliness or whatever it may be. You need, a, you need an it factor. And I remember when he said that, I immediately got a little bit insecure. Because I'm like, oh, no, do I have an it factor? <laughs> what's, what's my, I'm a dork. What's my it factor? I have a dork factor. That's all I have. And so I'm like, is that, is that why you come here? Like, to feel better about yourself? I, I'm a dork. And you're like, oh, this dork is preaching to me. And and that makes me feel good. So <laughs> I don't think I have an it, an it factor like what he's talking about. And I don't think that it's an it factor that made the ministry of Jesus so wildly popular. I don't think that's what it was. I, as a matter of fact, I think if Mark had heard a comment like that, he'd say, that's not what I'm getting at at all. Jesus, it, it wasn't like his personality or his charisma or whatever it may be. It, there was something that went beyond any and all of those things, that people were attracted to his message, attracted to what he was, he was teaching and preaching and what he was doing, his following. People were astonished. And Mark would say the reason people were so astonished is that they could immediately recognize the authority. They could immediately recognize the authority of Jesus. And it was something that you could hear whenever he was preaching. It was something that you could see when he was doing ministry. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the authority of Jesus that you could hear and the authority of Jesus that you could see. So let's pick up here at verse 21 of chapter 1, and let's just take uh, 21 and 22. This is the authority that you could hear when Jesus was preaching. It says, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Okay, so let's set the stage here. This is Capernaum. So when, whenever you think of Israel, like on a map, like if, if this was a map of Israel, down in the, it was kind of broken up into three sections. This bottom section here would be Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple is. The middle section would be Samaria. And there's a lot we could say about Samaria that we don't have time to get into. But the, the northern region of Israel is Galilee. And so uh, that's where Jesus grew up. This is where Nazareth is. And this is also where Capernaum is. Capernaum would be at the very tip top. If you can imagine on this map uh, of 
in the land of make-believe up here, this is not a map. <laughs> if you can imagine the Sea of Galilee at the northern uh, part of Israel, right at the tip top of the Sea of Galilee would be Capernaum. And so this is a fishing community, and this is where Peter was from. This is where he lived and had a home and was married. And so uh, Capernaum, fast fact with Capernaum, if you were looking at this word in the Hebrew, it would, it would be the, the village of Nahum. So this is Kafar Nahum. Like, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a book, Nahum. He was an Old Testament prophet. Well, this town was named after that prophet. So it was, the, Capernaum just means a village of Nahum. And so Jesus was there in Capernaum, likely staying with Peter, and it's the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath was not on a Sunday like what we think of it. The Sabbath was observed mostly on what we think of Saturday. And so there, and I say mostly because when Jews thought of a day, uh, they would think of the beginning of the day in the evening. So sundown, in our terms of thinking, sundown on a Friday night, that was the beginning of the Sabbath. And it would run all the way through the next day into sundown Saturday night. That was, what, that was when they observed the Sabbath. And so when you would want to worship on Sabbath, this day of rest and worship, the whole country of Israel every Sabbath didn't travel down to Jerusalem. It would be way too far to make that journey each and every week. They wouldn't travel all the way down to the temple. That was reserved for special times, festivals and special sacrifices and things like that. As far as a weekly routine of worship, you would gather at your local synagogue. And so even in Jerusalem, there was like 10 to 12 synagogues in Jerusalem where people would gather weekly. And those synagogues were scattered all throughout Israel. And so there was synagogues as far north as, as Capernaum here. And this is where Jesus is teaching in this synagogue. And so the word synagogue literally means gathering place or an assembly hall. And so if you wanted to start, let's say, let's say we all moved to a community and we're all Jews and we want to have our own synagogue. Well, the rules were you had to have at least 10 Jews, uh, 10 male Jews, at least 13 years or older, and you could start your own synagogue. The first thing you needed to do is you needed to appoint someone as a ruler of the synagogue. And so when you're reading through the Gospels, sometimes you hear a ruler of the synagogue referred to. That is not the local pastor. That's just the guy that agrees to regulate all the activities. He maintains the synagogue and he organizes all of the events that take place at the synagogue. And he also looks for people to teach at the synagogue. And so rabbis and scribes, as they would travel all throughout Israel preaching and teaching, these rulers of the synagogue would find them and ask them to preach and teach at their synagogue. And so here Jesus is traveling with one of his disciples, Peter, staying at his house in Capernaum. Peter knows where the local synagogue is. He, he talks to the synagogue ruler, and he says, hey, we got, a, we got a rabbi in town, and his name's Jesus. I've been learning a ton from him. Hey, let's have him speak at our local synagogue. And so that's how Jesus would have ended up at a place like this to preach and teach. When you went to a synagogue service, what would they do there? They would have prayers. They would read from the Law and the Prophets. Then there would be an Aramaic translation of what was being read, because remember, the Old Testament's 
It's written in mostly Hebrew. Some, there's there's uh, one book in there written in Aramaic. So when you would have that read, you would need a translation. Most of the Jews would speak Aramaic. So they would have that translation read. And then they would have a homily over what was read, or what we would call a, a sermon, uh, more or less, and then a closing benediction. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? That's what we do. Those are all the things that we do. We just gather, we read from God's word, we study God's word, talk about what it means, pray together. These are all the same things that God's people have always been doing, right? And so they're at Capernaum, they're in the synagogue, Jesus is the invited rabbi to preach and teach, and when he did this, they were astonished. Again, what was it about Jesus that they were so astonished? Why? Well, it tells us why. They were astonished because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So the scribes would come by and they would read from the, the law and the prophets. But what Jesus is doing is something different. He's reading from the law and prophets and then teaching with this authority that surpasses the authority of those scribes. And so when you would think of a scribe coming in to preach and teach, scribes were just people who did their homework for everybody else. They would study all week long. If there was a rabbinical writing over something in scripture, they've read it five times. They know it front and back. It was their job to understand the word of God and to communicate the word of God to his people. That's what a scribe did. It's just what a pastor does today, right? So this week when I went to my office, I'm thinking, hey, okay, time to write a sermon. What do I do? I read the text, read the text, read the text. That's the first thing you do when you're writing a sermon. And then I consult the experts. Just like a scribe would have went and read through all the rabbinical writings and experts of those days, like Gamaliel or something like that that we read about in Scripture, they would, I, I, I go and I look at the commentaries that, were, that have been written over the past 2,000 years. So I had six different commentaries that I read this week and one lecture uh, from a seminary that I, that I listened to over this passage of Scripture. I'm doing all of this homework so you don't have to. It's great when you do your homework, but I feel it's my job to do a lot of homework each and every week. It's like I write a research paper every week, which is funny because I hated writing research papers in school. So I've made a career of it. Right, I do the homework, do the research, and then share that with all of you so that you can have this knowledge too. That's what a scribe did for those people in those days. That's what I'm doing today. And so I didn't go to Capernaum last week to take part in an archaeological dig. Right? I just I read books. I, I didn't, um, you know, I, I'm not an expert in Greek or Hebrew or anything like that, but I can read. And so all that to say, and this, I don't think this should be disappointing or surprising, but everything I preach and teach on a Sunday morning, it's secondhand doctrine and theology. This is secondhand information. I'm not coming up with anything new. If I do, it's probably heresy, right? There's no pastor that can or should say anything new about Christianity today as they are preaching on a Sunday morning anywhere. This is secondhand doctrine and, and theology. And so I know sometimes you have pastors that claim to have this uh, special way of communicating with God that no one else can, but I got the same thing you got. I, I got a brain, I have my Bible, I have prayer, and I have fellow believers. And so we can chew on this stuff together. This is what we've come here to do, to, to, to just reflect upon and learn from the word of God. 
And so that's what a scribe would do. But when Jesus taught, when Jesus taught, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. It was, it was different. It surpassed that. Well, this makes a lot of sense to us when we think of who Jesus is, right? The word of God incarnate. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty good on your resume right there, right? The word of God incarnate, the word, word of God in, in the flesh. And so we got to realize and remember anytime when Jesus spoke, he was speaking out of the essence of who he was. He's God. And so when you think of Jesus teaching and when you think of a teacher with, you know, having authority, authority didn't come in any greater size than it did when Jesus spoke. It was the word of God in the flesh. So you think about the difference there and what a pastor today has to do and what Jesus would do. There was a difference, a monumental difference. When I'm making a point about scripture, I'll reference scripture and scripture and scripture, and then I'll reference, you know, scholars and theologians over time, and, and I'm doing all of, all of this research, and I'm compiling what the experts say into what I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, because I'm trying to bring some validity to what I'm saying. I want to do all of this homework so that I can prove to myself and to us as we study together that this is a, there is a consensus among Christians that we believe this. Well, Jesus didn't have to worry about any of that because there's no doubt Jesus knew the information. He, he did the research, research and he taught and, and studied, but like he did so with an authority that I'm not capable of. And so when he taught, you could hear this authority come through. Let me give you an example of this. When you turn to Matthew 5, we see the Sermon on the Mount. And so many times... Jesus would reference a saying of that day or an Old Testament truth and say, you've heard it said, and he would, he would present that, and he, then he would, he would follow that up by saying, but I say this, and he would make a point. Every time he would say, but I say, he was exercising his authority that no one else had but him. And so listen to this, for example. This is when he would preach about um, anger in, in chapter 5 verse 21 of Matthew you have heard that it, it was said of those uh, to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment okay well that's one of the ten commandments yeah you've, I've heard that said all right but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire Whoa, he took it up a notch. We know the Old Testament says this, but I say this. He intensified it. He added to this truth. When he talks about lust, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, it's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. No wonder they were astonished when he would teach, right? Hit you like a ton of bricks. He's speaking with so much authority. And what he is speaking is changing things. It's challenging them in a way they've never been challenged before. When he talks about divorce, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whew, man. Who does this guy think he is? 
He's speaking with an authority that is astonishing. He talks about oaths. Again, you have heard that it was a said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of God. Like, whoa. Or, or Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and so on and so forth. And he goes on and on and on. You have heard it said that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Then he goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, uh, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so when he would go around teaching like this, it's no wonder people were so astonished at what he was saying. There's something about those teachings that, again, they, they hit you so hard, it almost strikes a sense of panic and fear in your heart. When you're reading about Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says to the people, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. <laughs> okay, I'll try. It was astonishing. It was meant to provoke that panic and fear in, in the hearts of people. And it was said with such an authority that it was peculiar. It, it stuck out. It was astounding. So people, when they listened to him speak, they could hear an authority that surpassed anything they'd ever heard before. Oh, yeah, we're used to scribes coming around and teaching us what the Old Testament says or what the Bible says. And we're used to those scribes telling us what the experts say. But when Jesus speaks, he speaks with this authority that's just more. It's, it's on a superior level. It surpasses all of that. He is in a league of his own. Who does he think he is? Well, it was, a, it was an authority you could hear. And in addition to that, it was an authority that you could see. That's what Mark wants to tell us next. And so we get to see this interaction with Jesus and, and demons, which we'll see more than once as we go through this gospel. Isn't it noteworthy that we, we tend to avoid these topics like Satan and demons? And we've talked about it a lot here lately because it's, a, it's surfaced in the text. So when we're studying through a verse in the Bible where that subject comes up, we talk about that subject, and Chris, a few weeks ago, uh, did an entire sermon over Satan, and it surfaced in the text here, so we felt the need to, to help address it. And so here demons are surfacing in the text, and so we're, we're going to have to address that here today. So 23 through 26 of Mark chapter 1 says this, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And so Jesus interacts with this man is here uh, being oppressed and possessed with demons, and he's interacting with Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath, that, that, that could lead us down several rabbit trails right now when we even think of that reality, right, and, and how that works. But this demon is interacting with Jesus and saying, what have you to do with us? 
that phrase would have been used in the Greek to say like, go away. What are, you, what, are you, what are you doing here? Mind your business. This is our turf, not your turf. Get out of here. That was, that was what that would have uh, meant. Like, go, go away. And then after that, did you hear the question that he asked after that? Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, again, I don't want to rehash a lot of what Chris would have taught on here a few weeks, a few weeks ago. But when you read through the Bible, it is very clear that Satan and demons operate under the sovereignty of God. And that's, that's always a little uncomfortable to think of. But wouldn't it be more uncomfortable to think that Satan and demons operate outside of the sovereignty of God? I mean, God's either sovereign or he's not. And so they understand that their betrayal of Jesus, what we're taught in Scripture, will result in their eternal damnation in hell. And so they are not hanging out in hell, torturing people and having a good time and, and waiting on uh, mortar to arrive. Hell is a place God has created, and it's a place they are going to end up with non-believers. And so hell is a destiny that's awaiting them, and they know that it is a certainty and they know that when this happens, they're not going to be able to stop it. But when it happens, it will coincide with the reign of this Messiah, of this Christ. And so they don't know when it's going down, but they know what to look for. And so when they see one speaking with authority like this, and they see one whom the, the Holy Spirit has descended upon like a dove, and when they see the one who's passed the test in the wilderness and was able to deny everything that Satan tried to tempt him with, and it validated him as that Messiah, there is no question in their mind, this is the one who will destroy us and send us to the abyss. And so when they see him, they immediately ask, are you here to destroy us? They know they can't contest the authority that Jesus has. As a matter of fact, and I don't want to get the cart in front of the horse here, but in Mark chapter 5, we'll see another moment in which Jesus is interacting with a demon-possessed man. And that man, when he sees Jesus, the demons inside of him rush him to the feet of Jesus and say, oh God, don't torture us. That's literally what the demon says. Bows before Jesus, don't torture us. They understand that they have to submit. This is someone who is sovereign above them. They understand this. And so in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see people trying to figure out who Jesus is. Just like us, when we read through the gospel, we're trying to make sense of this Messiah. We're trying to make sense of what he said, who he claims to be, and, and what he did. And so at times when people are learning this story, and at times when they were witnessing this unfold in history, they would be unsure of who Jesus was. But when, G but when, when demons or Satan interact with Jesus. They know precisely who he is. And so here we see the first being to be precise about who Jesus is are demons. They, they know him, they fear him, and they know that he can exercise an authority that goes beyond what they are capable of. And so you can imagine that day at the synagogue, pretty exciting, pretty exciting you got Jesus teaching with all of this authority, and then he backs up that authority with this miraculous moment of telling this demon to come out of this man, and the demon listens. 
The demon obeys the command of Jesus. It was an authority you could hear, and it was an authority you could see. How do people respond to this? Well, let's read here in 28, or 27 and 28. It says, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So they heard it and they saw it and now they got to deal with it. So remember, that's the purpose of a miracle. The purpose of a miracle is to validate the message of, of God's messenger. And so the demons and Satan, they recognized, they, they knew who Jesus was based on this temptation in the wilderness and, and, and those interactions with him. And, and for the rest of the people, they would hear this message of authority. Well, they needed some validation too. So miracles took place. And that is the purpose of miracles in Scripture. And John, in John's gospel, he actually uses a different word to refer specifically to miracles. He, he, he calls them signs. It's because a sign teaches you something. A sign has information attached to it. And so when, when God's messenger would speak to his people, God would validate this message through a sign. And in Jesus' case, it informed them that he was the Messiah, that he did have this authority, uh, and it was a valid authority uh, when it came to the things that he taught. And I think also when we think about Jesus telling these demons to, to, to leave this person, I think it also teaches us a little bit about why he came. Right? It speaks to the reason why he is doing what he is doing. He has come to release us from the grips of sin and evil in this world. All of, all of Jesus' miracles, they point to the, to the nature of the kingdom that he is ushering in. It speaks to the type of kingdom that he is king over. It's a kingdom that is free from the effects of sin. And so how can Jesus do this? How can Jesus bring in this kingdom? He has the authority to do it. He has the authority to redeem you and I from the bondage of sin. And so when we reflect upon the authority of Jesus, we may ask ourselves, do we have faith in this authority? Right? We, you and I tend to mistrust authority. We, we do, we're, we're rebels by nature, and it's probably true that in some way, shape, or form, someone in authority over you at some point in your life in some way has abused you using that authority. And so anytime someone is in authority over you, we can't help but be a little sus when we're looking at them. Question everything they do. Question everything they say. They're probably doing this because of that. They're, they're probably trying to put their thumb down on me in this way. They're just out for themselves. This is all about them. This isn't about the people, right? And so anytime we think of the word authority, we get a little nervous. We have this natural mistrust. But when we reflect upon Jesus and his authority, we are taught that this authority is special. And he used it in a special way that teaches us so much about how we are to live right now and teaches us so much about the hope that we have. This is someone who establishes his kingship through sacrificing himself. He has given his life. He, he establishes his reign as Messiah by sacrificing himself to die 
to, to die for us that we could live. And so the message of salvation, it was ultimately validated by this miracle, his resurrection, right? And it was after his resurrection that he says this to his disciples. This is one of the last things you read in the book of Matthew. After his resurrection, he says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your authority. Lord, when you sacrificed yourself for us and rose again, you established that you have authority even over death. You conquered death. Lord, we're so grateful to be able to have this, this hope and this freedom to live with now, Lord, because it is so plain to see that this world is fallen and corrupt and we, we live in, in this bondage to sin and suffering and mistrust and evil. But Lord, you have come to free us from that. And we are free because you have authority to free us. I pray that that is where our hope falls today. That it rests in that. That when we think about the hope of eternal life free from sin... That we, don't, that we don't fall into the temptation of thinking that we have to earn that or deserve that or claw and scratch for that. But Lord, you, by your authority, freely give it to us through your sacrifice. You are a king that is worthy to be praised. And we are grateful to live with the hope that you've given us. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.